Hello. Welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number 38, corresponding with the week of September 4, 2023. This week, we're going to dive into some literature. We're going to get into section two with how to talk to kids and then a recipe of the week. So let's look at the literature review. Number one, in a recent study about attention hyperactivity disorder in PLOS One, we see the following, quote, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, is a common mental health behavioral disorder in children. Alterations in gut microbiota composition are associated with neurological disorders. We aim to investigate whether a ketogenic diet can be an alternative therapy for ADHD by altering the gut microbiota. Male spontaneously hypersensitive rats and Wistar Kyoto rats were randomly allocated to the normal diet, methylphenidate, which is a drug, and ketogenic diet groups. The spontaneously hypersensitive rats in groups ketogenic diet or methylphenidate exhibited a significant increase in behavioral characteristics of ADHD, such as distance moved and immobility time. Ketogenic diet and methylphenidate treatment led to a significant elevation in concentrations of 5-HT, ACCAMP, and NE, all neurotransmitters for brain tissue, and the expression of DRD1, DAD, PKA, DAR, PP32, and CAMP at the protein level in the rats. Ketogenic diet and methylphenidate significantly increased the richness and diversity of the gut microbiota, in the spontaneously hypersensitive rats. The abundance of ruminococcus, group Bacteroides, Bifidobacterium, and Blauschia all significantly increased, whereas Lactobacillus, Rumbustia, Phaclemia, and Turicobacter significantly declined in the KD group compared to the not treated group. The gut microbiota in the ketogenic diet group of the spontaneously hypersensitive rats mainly participate in amino acid metabolism and sugar metabolism related pathways. The ketogenic diet might alleviate behavioral disorders in ADHD by regulating gut microbiota. This study provides novel insights for the use of ketogenic diet in treating ADHD. End quote from Liu et al. 2023. That was a mouthful. Okay, so let's, let's sort of drill that down. For me, the study is more about the diet that was the control as opposed to the ketogenic diet in and of itself. It is clear to me that ketogenic diets are neuron-sparing, whether it is neurodegenerative disease or seizures. However, the issue of ADHD in my mind is a highly processed, highly sugar-laden substrates that drive neuronal damage in the American student. Other than being a very difficult diet to follow, I've tried it for one week and it's not easy, the ketogenic diet is safe for all to experiment with. But ultimately, I think what the study says to us is that the microbiota will shift if you change the diet towards a more healthy type, right? But I'm not sure ketogenic is the answer, and I'm not too sure this study proves that. I think this study, study sort of shows us in an animal model that you will be able to alter the microbiota, which we knew, if somebody goes on a ketogenic diet. But I think ultimately the more preponderance of the data sort of states for me that the best way to shift the microbiome is to get away from highly processed sugar-laden foods and go towards a whole foods diet that is loaded with fiber and specific cofactor micronutrients that help the brain work. And oh, by the way, the microbiota eat those fibers and they shift and they become metabolite-helping 
microbes. They actually give us metabolites that help us function better and our neural pathways. So that's sort of that. Number two, a new COVID paper looking at reinfection over time based on prior natural disease sheds some light on real-time statistics from The Lancet. Quote, protection from past infection and any symptomatic disease was high for ancestral alpha, beta, and delta variants, both substantially low for the Omicron BA.1 variant. Pooled effectiveness against reinfection by the Omicron BA.1 variant was 45.3% and 44% against Omicron BA.1 symptomatic disease. Mean pool effectiveness was greater than 78% against severe disease, hospitalization, and death for all variants, including Omicron BA.1. Protection from reinfection from ancestral alpha and delta variants declined over time but remained at 78.6 at 40 weeks. Protection against reinfection by Omicron BA.1 variant declined more rapidly and was estimated at 36.1% at 40 weeks. On the other hand, protection against severe disease remained high for all variants, with 90.2% for ancestral alpha delta variants and 88.9% for Omicron BA.1 at 40 weeks, end quote. This comes to us from the COVID forecasting team 2023 in The Lancet. So what we glean from this data set is that human infection with Omicron variants are more difficult to remain immune to symptomatically over a year's time course, but remain highly protective against severe disease. This continues to pigeonhole current SARS-2 infection in the land of influenza with mostly mild disease and, as discussed last week, a reasonable reproductive rate at just over one. In children, SARS-2 is utterly benign. We have yet to see a significant case requiring intervention beyond the common cold or flu case since Omicron came to play. Number three, a combination of omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids did not improve premature-born infant's vision. From a study in The Lancet by Lundgren, we see the following. Quote, of 178 children of the trial, 115 with a median gestational age of 25 weeks and a median birth weight of 790 grams were ophthalmologically assessed at a median corrected age of 2.7 years. There was no significant effect of arachidonic acid DHA supplementation being detected in visual acuity outcome. It is always useful to publish and discuss negative data, in my mind, as much as the positive. In this case, the authors found no benefit. The study to me is flawed from the start as the supplement was a mix of arachidonic acid and docosahexaenoic acid. The issue here is that arachidonic acid is not deficient fatty acid in the human population of pregnant women in general. The omega-3 fatty acids are the concern. Thus, the null finding is not surprising. The other concern I have with the study is 50% of the patient was 50% of the patients were lost during the study period, really messing with the data numbers. But again, publishing negative data is useful for an understanding. For me, the mechanism effect of DHA and EPA fatty acids for protection of the visual neurons and cells from oxidative stress and inflammation associated with prematurity and retinopathy of prematurity is very solid. So I think there is something to be said still about giving omega-3 fatty acids despite the study. Number four. Neurological finding in a cohort of post-concussed individuals is discussed in a new JAMA study. This is very important, albeit sad data, set from the Understanding Neurologic Injury and Traumatic Encephalopathy Brain Bank of Young Donated Athlete Brains. From the study by McKee et al., 
Quote, in the case of 152 contact sport athletes younger than 30 years at the time of death, chronic traumatic encephalopathy was found in 63, 41.4%, with nearly all having mild CTE, stages 1 and 2. Neuropathologic abnormalities associated with CTE included ventricular enlargement, cavum septum pellucidum, thalamic notching, and perivascular pigment-laden macrophage deposition in the frontal white matter, end quote. The follow-up findings were striking. The cause of death was CTE related to almost all cases from suicide or drug overdose. All CTE sufferers were neurologically symptomatic. 75% were male, and football was the most common sport associated with a bad outcome. Repetitive head traumas in a susceptible population playing contact sports is a major concern for all of us in medicine and as parents. I cannot stress enough that nutrition, omega-3 fatty acids, sleep, and general health are protective against inflammation in the entire system. Problem number one remains protective gear and playing style in contact sports. We must continue to invest in preventative measures for those that, are, that continue to engage in sport. However, controlling the inputs to systemic inflammation are of significant importance as well. We'll keep studying this piece, but for me, it's pretty straightforward. Making sure that we protect our brains through quality diets, quality sleep, quality chemical avoidance, quality, all of those inputs while wearing protective gear hopefully will reduce these risks over time. Number five. Continued evidence has shown that the bacterial intestinal microbiome is associated with neurological health in infants and children. This bacterial population is delivered by the mother and altered by the diet and drug exposure primarily in the early period of life. Bacterial colonization occurs before the maturation of many neural systems of the infant. In PLOS One, we see, quote, study with a multidisciplinary approach to test if the microbiota composition of infants is associated with measures of early cognitive development in particular, neurorhythm tracking, language versus non-language, discrimination, and social joint attention. Infants who succeed at the point and gaze test tended to have increased actinobacteria and reduced firmicutes at the phylum level, an increase in bifidobacter and ergothella, along with reduction in huncatella and streptococcus at the genus level. Measurements of neural rhythm tracking associated negatively to the abundance of bifidobacterium and positive to the abundance of clostridium and enterococcus for bacterial abundances, and associated positively to metabolic pathways that can influence neurodevelopment, including branched-chain amino acids, biosynthesis, and pentose pathway pathways. End quote. This comes to us from Hunter et al. in PLOS One. This is a small study but again, points to the same reality. The bacteria here for a symbiotic relationship. We need to heed this data for mothers primarily to understand the risk of current human lifestyle decisions as they relate to diets, medicine exposure, chemicals, and more. The specifics of the bacteria are not that important for all of us to understand. The details of why the bacteria shift towards those types that we don't want is the key. And for me, pregnancy and pre-pregnancy remains a super important state for women to pay attention tremendously to what we eat it makes a huge difference long term okay section two learning to effectively communicate with your child or children is not an easy task especially when your child is argumentative they often clump up or excuse me they often clam up when we want them to speak or the opposite stream of argumentative thoughts and words depending on age are we closing their voices down with our fix, it directed language, a lack of listening, 
or the want it our way mentality. Enter Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish's book, How to Talk So That Kids Will Listen. For me, it's clear from the outset of this book that when we lose the ability to listen empathetically to our child or loved one, we are mostly tapping into a previous hurt or loss. A failure on our part in the past is the driving force behind the intense desire to fix the child's current issue. Quote, I wasn't loved enough as a child, therefore we over-attend to our child to compensate developing the entitled children. End quote. Listening and not judging is the hardest yet most important part of communicating. You have to step back from the conversation and try to read into what they are feeling and not so much the words or content which is often just angry bluster. It's hard to do when your emotions are tripped. I know this personally. It's very difficult. Remember, quote Dr. Faber says, don't ask for them to explain why they feel the way they do because far too often they don't know and will feel worse knowing that. Acknowledging is easy if you pass step one. Just a simple word here and there to let them know that you are present moment. How to give their feelings a name. Listening to what they are saying and honing the feeling. Is it anger, sadness, frustration, etc.? Once you have the feeling, give it back to them. For example, it sounds like you said, you are unsure about this decision, huh? Let them sit with the knowledge of their feeling, truly feel it, and work out the answer on their own. That is the parenting gift. Again, hard to do when we are hardwired to fix. The book also offers nice ideas for the difficult anger-prone child. A physical activity can be nice, sublimation of their feelings. For example, child screaming out feelings. Quote, it sounds like you are really angry, end quote. Here, take this paper and markers and draw me a picture of how angry you are. Or, physically angry, can child can be asked if running around a tree or punching a pillow would feel better. Witness whatever it is that they are doing and honor it. This is truly what they need. Obviously, we draw the line itself or other types of injurious behavior. Dr. Faber's advice in a paraphrased form. One, listen with full attention. Being attentive is akin to saying that I love you. This is a difficult task for many in the world of smartphones and constant distraction. Two, acknowledge their feelings with a word. Oh, mmm, I see, I understand, etc. This validation goes a long way to helping them relax and feel understood. Three, consequences and not punishments. The consequence keeps the child in connection with the parent while a punishment is a punitive and separating event. A consequence to a behavior should be that we will do chores together while we listen to a story about a better way to be. Four, use descriptive language. Avoid, avoid using anything that's accusatory or judgmental. Instead, describe the situation or behavior. You are not a bad person so much as that was a really poor decision. Five, give choices. Offer a child two or three choices whenever possible, thus giving them a sense of autonomy and control. Six, use I statements about how you feel about the situation without blaming them, but again, focusing on your feelings toward the behavior. Seven, problem solve together. Encourage your child to participate in problem solving when conflicts arise by asking for their input on finding solutions. Eight, set clear expectations. To be clear and brief 
when setting expectations or rules and make sure that your child understands the consequences that are tied to the behavior. Nine, and very important, model behavior. Children learn by observing their parents. Model the behaviors and communication styles you want to see in your child. If you want them to speak respectfully, do the same. 10. Give positive feedback. This is very important as well. Praise and encourage your child when they exhibit positive behavior and make an effort to change. Positive reinforcement is more effective than criticism 99 out of 100 times. Praise the behavior, not the person. Just like we don't want to praise someone's looks or someone's smarts. We want to praise their effort and their work. The work of Carol Dweck is very strong in that department. Okay, section three, recipe of the week. One of my favorites, Italian wedding soup by the Evolving Table. Really super good. Loaded with vitamins A, K, and all the Bs, especially folate and B12. Lots of selenium and zinc. Most amounts of other minerals. Get on it. Recipes in the newsletter. You can get that at SalisburyPediatrics.com. Song of the Week, What Was I Made For by Billie Eilish. All right, y'all. Have a great day. Always remember to hug those kids. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.